If you grew up in church, you probably had your parents quote at you at some point in time, 1 Corinthians 15.33, bad company corrupts good character. I didn't grow up in the church. My mom always said, don't hang around with certain kinds of people because they're a bad influence. In fact, we had kids in our neighborhood that were bad influence. We weren't supposed to go hang out with them. For the life of me working on this, I was trying to remember the name of the family that was down the street that we were told, you guys don't go over there. And those were the kids that stole my Tonka truck when I was a kid. And they were playing out in their yard with it when I went and said I wanted it back. They laughed at me and told me to go away. Still bitter about that. Bad influence. Well, today, I'm the bad influence. In fact, I wore one of my favorite t-shirts. It says bad influence on it. As pastor, that's one of my favorite t-shirts, and I wear it occasionally just because I think it's kind of ironic and fun. But I'm here today to wreck your life. Totally mess it up. And what's more, I'm going to do it for free. I'm not even going to charge you for the service. And like those late night TV ads from Ronco, you know, the spray on hair or whatever dehydrators or whatever they're selling today. But wait, there's more. Not only do I intend to ruin your life today, I hope to. I hope you go out and ruin other people's lives when I'm done. We're just going to make a mess of everything. Now, why would a pastor want to do that? I thought the whole job of being a pastor was to make everything go better, right? If you believe that, you don't know what pastors are for and you don't know much about them. We can share that later and talk about that. But right now, ruining your life is part of our series. You see, we're going through what we call the As You Are series. And if you've stuck around this long, you've probably heard this, but I'm going to share it again anyway, because I want anybody who's joining us new to understand the idea. The idea comes from looking at Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Celebrate Recovery, the various 12 steps programs that are out there. They give you 12 steps that you follow to get off of whatever your addiction is or whatever you're struggling with in life. And when I was going to Bible college, one of my assignments was to attend a 12-step meeting as part of my counseling program. And when I went there and saw what they do and how they do, I fell in love. What a cool idea. The idea that you can be an alcoholic stumbling in off your most recent drunk into a meeting, barely coherent. You can have vomit on your shirt because you threw up last night. When you come in, they say, welcome, brother. Welcome, friend. And if you stick around for just 24 hours, they give you a little chip, a little reward that says, you've been sober for 24 hours. And if you keep sticking around and you're sober for a week, they give you another chip. And if you're sober for a month and a year and... And 18 months and three years, you, you keep getting these things to say, hey, you're doing good. You're on the right path. You're doing well. And then you can be 20 or 30 years sober. And then one day life happens and you screw it up. You fall off the wagon. You take another drink. You take another injection. You do whatever it is that your struggle is. And you walk back in the next day 
And nobody says, you loser, you fell off the wagon. I knew you'd never last. No. You can walk in the next day and they say, welcome, brother. Welcome, friend. Welcome home. Here's your first chip for 24 hours. And I just, I love that picture. And I think the church ought to look like that. Because we're all coming in off of all kinds of messed up stuff in our lives. We've got sin in our lives. We've got problems in our life. We've got struggles. We've got things that we've done wrong and people we've hurt. And then we've got people who've hurt us. We have people who've been abused. We've got people who've struggled with just about anything you can think of in the book. And they're sitting right here in the room or they're watching us online. And unfortunately, the church has gotten a name for itself, not necessarily this church, but overall the church, especially in America, has gotten this, this name for itself of this angry, judgmental group of people. Well, shoot, I walk around here every Sunday morning and y'all seem pretty nice to me. Do you know all the things I've done? Do you have time to go through that list right now? No, you're welcoming. You're loving and encouraging, and that's who we want to be. So as we're going through this series, we're looking at what, what would the church look like if we were intentional about this? We're going to say, as you are, welcome. You can walk in this building any way, shape, or form that you have, and you're welcome. Welcome home, traveler. We're glad you're here. So we've been going through the 12 steps and kind of looking at them both from an addiction point of view, but also from a life and a sin point of view. And as a Christian growth model of what that looks like. And we talked about the first step is admitting that you've got a problem. Admitting that you're powerless over the addictions and compulsive behaviors and the stuff that are in our lives. Our lives have become unmanageable. And if we don't recognize that we can't fix it ourselves, it's kind of hard to go anywhere. And the truth is, when you look around the world, you look around your friends and neighbors and the people that are out there that you know... I'll bet you recognize that their lives are often pretty unmanageable. What we're inviting you to do is to turn around and look in a mirror and realize that that's true. Admit that yourself. And then you get to step two, where you believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And that's God. We can't fix it all. We need him desperately to fix our lives. We cannot save ourselves. We need the salvation that God provided through his son, Jesus Christ. Step three, we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God, to trust him to work in our lives. Step four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Figure out what's going on. The good stuff, the bad stuff, the problem stuff, the difficulties, the things we got to do, the things we owe people. Get it all figured out. Get it all down on paper. Do that inventory. Dang, that's hard stuff. But if we make it through that, we go to steps five and six. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We admitted to God and ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. And then we're ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven is we humbly ask him to remove these shortcomings. And then we move on to eight and nine. We made a list of all the persons we had, had harmed and became willing to make amends. And then we set out that whenever it's safe to do so, to fix those things in our life. We go to people. 
If they've got a problem with us, we go to them and try to fix that. If we've got a problem with them, guess what? We go to them and try to fix that. That's who we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be going to fix relationships, not bearing grudges, not dragging all this extra baggage through our lives. We work on it whenever it is safe to do so. Last week, Pastor Bernie took over for me while I was sick. Thank you, Pastor Bernie. And he talked about uh, how we continue to take a personal inventory. And when we're wrong, we promptly admit it. We get to the point that as we've stuck around doing this for a little while, it becomes a part of who we are. We make a mistake and we go about fixing it. We don't hang on to it for a long time. Guess what? Life becomes just a smidgen easier when you're fixing things as you go. This is kind of like, you know, I'm a dad. I have kids that I'm trying to teach how to do things in life. And one of the things they hear from me all, uh, all the time uh, is if you didn't have time to do it right the first time, how do you have time to do it again? If you get it right the first time, you don't got to do that. Well, if you clean up your messes as you go, things get a little bit easier in life. And that's sure a nice thing. That brings us, though, to step 11. Look, we're almost through all 12 steps. If you've stuck around through all of this series, you know it's been a struggle. If you think through all of these steps and what you have to do, I mean, a fearless and searching moral inventory of ourselves. Holy moly. You think that's easy? To look at your own life and be honest. Man, that's hard stuff. To confess our sins and wrongs to God and even share them with another person. No, we're not talking about standing up in front of the congregation and going through that list I talked about of everything I've done wrong. I'm not going to do that. But I will share with people that I trust. I will talk to somebody who's going to speak into my life and help me walk through it. I've got to share with God. But that ain't easy. All of this is tough stuff. So let me be honest with you right now before we take another step into this sermon. It's going to get harder just a little bit. Step 11 is the one that's really going to mess things up. It's the one that's going to really wreck your life and just screw it all up completely. Sure you're ready for this? Step 11 is we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and power to carry that out. You see, up to this point in time, our contact with God is just saying, hey, uh, I hope you can fix me because I'm pretty screwed up. And here's the list of things I think I've done. And um, I'm just going to hand it to you. We good? But at step 11, now it's not about our will. It's about his will. That's when it gets hard. And perhaps you're thinking, well, shoot. Prayer and meditation, I can do that. That's just really a scheduling issue, right? Five minutes in the morning, I got that. I can sit down 
uh, read a Bible verse of the day. Maybe I'll get me one of those calendars you sit on your desk. You know, it has a Bible verse and you rip one off, throw it away, and there's another one. You keep doing that all year, and that, that's what they're talking about, right? Hmm. Maybe it's a start. The Bible tells us that God's word does not return void. Therefore, if you're getting God's word in your life somehow, that's a good thing. But step 11 here is something a little bit more. You see these steps, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, are all a growth thing. And so like any growth in your life, it starts at one level. And then you keep growing and it gets more and more and more. Now, I'm even going to say that it's, it starts easy and gets harder because the truth of the matter, when you're struggling with step one, that's the biggest struggle of your life that day. When a child is learning how to walk, that's the biggest deal in their life at that point in time. When my kids are learning a new kind of math in school, that's their struggle at that point in time. When they're learning how to read, that's their struggle at that point in time. And you can look back and go, man, I can read. That's no problem. What's your problem, kid? No, so it's not necessary that it starts easy and gets harder. It's just you're more capable as you go down this road. The more you learn, the more you grow, the more you can handle. And so there's a point in time where you look back and you're like, well, shoot, that's no big deal. Yeah, I recognize that I had a problem and I needed God to fix me. Steps one and two were easy, right? They weren't easy when you were there. And step 11 isn't easy when you're there. And maybe someday you look back and go, man, that's easy. Right now, this one's going to mess you up. And I promise you that if you spend time with God in his word, it's going to change your life. There's two sides of this step. It talks about prayer and meditation. So let's talk about prayer first. I'm going to come over and talk to these people about prayer. Over here. You guys need to know about prayer. We need to fix our view of prayer before we go any farther in this conversation. Because the view of prayer in our country is just downright goofy. The view of prayer out of many Christians, I hear things and I'm like, oh, not so much. You see, we read scriptures like Matthew 21, 22 and say, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Or Mark eleven twenty four. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, Believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Oh, man, that's cool. That is awesome stuff. I'm going to try that out. Say, God, please give me a million dollars. I have faith that you're going to give me keys to a Ferrari, a deed to a paid-off house on Camelback Mountain, and make me the best-looking man in the room. Well, I got one of them. God is not a cosmic vending machine who's just hanging out waiting for us to ask for just anything that we want. Because the things we want aren't always good for us. Sometimes the things we want aren't good for other people. You know, some guy cut me off today in a parking lot this morning. He was driving across the parking lot instead of down the rows like I was. And he came out from behind this group of cars, almost hit me. Actually, I would have almost hit him. I didn't see him coming. 
slammed on my brake, cussed at him with my horn like a good Christian would do. I didn't use the words. I just pushed the button. I could have asked God right then and there to smite that. Oh, I won't call them names, but I thought them. You see, if God gave me everything I want, I'm pretty sure that I'd mess things up. When we look at these things and say, oh, God's going to give us what we ask for if we believe enough. That is, by the way, heresy. If we believe hard enough, we can make God do things. That's a heresy that we call the health and wealth gospel. And by heresy, it means something that's not biblical. Nowhere in the Bible do we get the message that God has to give me everything I want. And if you ever hear a preacher, say on channel 21 or anywhere else that you hear preaching, and they tell you all you got to do is name it and claim it. All you got to do is have faith. Make a little seed donation and God's going to give you great things. God will bless you financially if you donate to the church. You ever hear a church saying that? I want you to stand up and say bull crap and run out the door. In fact, you have my permission to say the even stronger version of that if you want. Because that's harmful. It's a harmful message. Because then when God doesn't give people what they want, what they desperately, desperately want, they lose faith. They think they weren't good enough. Well, guess what? None of us are good enough and we need God to save us. And if you got to go back to step two to learn that, we'll go back and then work our way back forward. You see, the Bible says in John 15, Seven, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done. If you abide, if you spend time in me, the things you ask for, if you spend time in God, the things you ask for are going to be according to his will. And it gets a little bit more clear in 1 John 5, 14, where it says, this is the confident in which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. His will. Step 11 even says it. We sought through prayer and meditation to prove our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of his will for us to carry that out. You see, even atheists get this mucked up. When I have conversations with uh, atheist friends of mine, this is one that occasionally comes up, the idea, well, you know, the Bible says if you uh, tell that mountain to move, it's just going to happen. So go ahead. I dare you, Roger. Camelback Mountain's right there. Just move it. That's assuming that God has to do what I want him to do. It says in his will, if God wants to move Camelback Mountain, you darn toot and it's going to move. If I want to move it, well, we've got a couple shovels. Anybody want to join me and see how long it takes us? Prayer is bringing us in line with his will, not ours. The Lord's prayer is not my will be done. It's your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first step of this whole concept of step 11 is prayer and understanding how it actually works. So when you go to God and pray, God, Help me. I'm stuck in my sin. God's going to help you. May not look like the way you planned it for the help, but he's going to help you. Because it's in his will that sin leave our wives, how, lives. How do we know? It's in the Bible. If we go to God and say, God, 
I've been struggling with my dad. I'm angry at him and he's angry at me. Will you help us fix that relationship? Or your brother or your uncle or your mom or whoever. Say, God, I need help in figuring out how to fix this relationship or to make it as healthy as it can be on this world. God's going to help you because he says that's important. It may not look like how you'd like it to go. But he's going to help you. If you've been abused and you say, God, that person hurt me in a deep and dark and terrifying way, and it's affected my life. God, will you help me to deal with that? He's going to help you. It may not look like the way you think it might, but you are praying in his will at that point in time. God, make me a better Christian. God, help me grow. God, make me more generous. God, make me more forgiving. God, lift up me, lift me up in encouragement. God, help me to encourage others. The things that are in God's will are in his word. And that brings us to the next part, meditation. Now, when we talk about meditation as Christians, we're not talking about this fluffy uh, new age idea of if, if I just like, Sitting on the floor, cross-legged, they call it crisscross applesauce in school now. I just sit there on the floor and get rid of all thoughts in my mind. I'll be at peace. Well, I can be frank with you and say that there's far too many people out in the world trying to operate without using thoughts. I want you to use your brain. God gave you your brain for a purpose, for a reason. Please use it. Meditation in the Bible is thinking on God. More specifically, thinking on God's word and his ways and his will. Now, I'm not a preacher who tries to find things that have all the same letter to start them. Some people do that. I don't. But in this case, ways, will, and, and uh, yeah, I already forgot the other W already. His word. There we go. Meditation in the Bible is thinking on God's word, his ways, and his will. And Psalm 119, it is the biggest chapter in the Bible. And if you look in your Bible and you split it kind of in half about yay and open it up, you might just be at Psalm 119. If not, it's a couple pages either way because it's right about in the middle. And it's the longest single chapter in the book. In fact, it's a long poem. Now, if you were the kid in school who hated poetry and didn't want to read it because you hated it, this is not like boring poetry. This is, I think, pretty good stuff, especially as a Christian. And the bulk of it is about meditating, thinking, considering God's ways, God's words, God's will, his deeds, the things he's, he's done, the things he said, it's all in there. I'll give you an example because some of you may have memorized this if you were back in a youth group at some point in time. The Psalm 119 starting at verse 9 says, how can a young man or a young lady keep his way or her way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart, I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, who teach me, teaches me your statutes. With my lips, I declare all the decrees of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in riches. I will meditate 
on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and I, statutes, and I will not forget your words. That's meditation. In fact, all of 119 there. He's meditating on God and who God is and his ways and his will and his words and his deeds and the things that have happened, the things he's said. My invitation to you and my challenge, even to myself, is to continue to do this. And when you read your Bible, it's okay to just read your Bible, but let me encourage you not to just read your Bible. I want you to chew on it. I want you to struggle with it. I want you to wrestle with it. I want you to write down if it bothers you something God said. I want you to look at the Bible and go, well, that's weird. Because you know what? There's some weird stuff in there. I want you to read your Bible and go, man, I don't understand what that means. I want you to read your Bible and communicate with other Christians, other people around you and go, you know what? I just read today. This is how it affected me. You know what I just read today? Holy moly, I think God wants me to do something. I think he's downright talking to me through his word. Yep, he is. People occasionally come to me as a pastor and say, I don't know what God's will is for my life. I'm like, it's all right here. Just read it. It doesn't all apply every moment to every part of your life, but there are words in here that you need to hear today. And tomorrow you read it again and there's different words in there that you need to hear that day. Meditate on it. There's a thing called Lectio Divina, which is a a practice that I do as part of my scripture preparation. And it's where you read the same bit of scripture over and over again. In fact, if I'm preaching something to you, I have read it 20, 30, 40, 50 times. Because I want to get it in here and in here. It's not right for me to communicate something to you and say, do this. If I'm not going, oh, crap, that's affecting me too. Lectio Divina challenges you to read it, to meditate on it, to pray about it, and to contemplate it. That's that spending that time chewing on it and thinking about it and wrestling with it and struggling with it. And then you learn how to interpret it. If you don't know how to interpret the Bible when you read it, how to understand what it's saying, you give me a call. I have a book for you. Give it to you free. I'll spend some time and walk through showing you how to do it. Pastor Bernie would love to do that too. Meditating on God's word and his will and his ways is going to mess you up. It's going to wreck your life. And in the beginning, you'll find some answers and you'll find some comfort. But the longer you do it, you'll find more questions than you thought you had. And you'll find some scripture that makes you downright uncomfortable. That's good stuff when that starts happening. I promise you. Here's how it changes you. Here's how it wrecks your life and messes you up in a good way. In Philippians chapter 4 through 9, it says, the apostle Paul is talking to the Philippians church. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Well, shoot. What's that God's will for me? Did I just read something that God has for me there? Yeah, it says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Did God just talk to me there? I think so. 
<clears throat> the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. I'm learning here. And here's a good thing. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. How? He says here, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And what you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you reasonableness, peace of God, not being anxious. You see, there's messages in there for us and there's promises too. Here's how you get the peace of God. Be involved in these things. Be involved in doing this. It says, focus on the truth. Why? Has anybody opened up social media in the last, when was Facebook invented? Has anybody looked at the news media well, for a while, there's a lot of lies and half truth. Well, shoot, every ad on TV from one or the other of the big name politicians or most of the local politicians is a half truth. Do you recognize that? God tells us to focus on the truth. And you know, if you focus on the truth, all of that stuff, you start to be able to see through. He says, whatever's honorable, focus on that. If we are focusing on what's honorable, it helps us to become honorable people. And it becomes a beacon to others. Focus on what is pure, whatever is pure. Things like greed, lust, envy. Those things hold less sway over our lives. We talk about addictions. Well, shoot, pornography, drugs, abuse. Those kind of things start to drift away when you're focusing on what's pure and getting pure. Focus on what's lovely and beautiful and the ugliness of things like racism, of child trafficking, of rioting and looting. Those kind of things don't fit in there when you're focusing on what's beautiful. Focus on what's commendable, the good acts of people. Focus on the protesters who, stand, who are standing up for what they believe in. Who are peacefully trying to bring change for something they believe. And you won't believe the lies that it's all rioters and looters. Focus on the good deeds that police officers do every single day in millions of interactions with people. And you won't focus on the few bad apples and you won't believe that that's the way everybody is. See how that works? Anything that's excellent or praiseworthy, focus on that. Whatever it is, keep it in your life. Maybe then you won't pass on that meme that's kind of nasty to the other side. Maybe then you won't pass on that unchecked rumor that you see. Maybe you won't be insulting to other people in the way you talk about them or treat them. Maybe you won't spend your time on the farthest right or farthest left questionable media that's out there. 
I'm really in tune right now with Facebook toxicity because of two things. One, last week I was dog sick. I was off the internet for like four or five days. I know. How do you live nowadays that way? When I turned it back on, it was like lowering myself into a bath water that's covered with oil. Like there's good stuff down there somewhere, but I have to go through filth to find it. I was complaining it to my friend Daniel, who's a worship leader up here, and he told me what he had done. He had created a thing on his phone to cut down the amount of time during the day that he's allowed on Facebook. So Daniel, I did it. I cut it down so that I can only be uh, max on any kind of social media an hour and a half a day. Thank you, buddy. You know what? It's affected me in a good way. I, I've begun to slip out of the toxicity just a little bit more. Now, I'm still going to go out there. Why? Because that's where people are and we're called to reach people. But I can certainly put some limits on it, some boundaries to help protect myself. Verse 9 there says, whatever you've learned, whatever you received, and whatever you've heard, and what you've seen in me, the Apostle Paul, who's being an example, doing all these things too, he says, practice these things and God's peace will be with you. You know what? He's right. Whatever you've learned from reading the Bible, from listening to sermons, from even your praise and worship, when we sing, those are messages that come into us. Whatever you've learned from that, whatever you do, put it into practice and your life is going to be screwed up. Messed up according to the world. Why you're going to be generous. Why you're going to be people of peace. Why you're going to be problem solvers. Why you're going to be comforters and encouragers. And that's just weird to everybody else. Step 11 is we sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for, his, for knowledge of his will for us and, accord, and the power to carry that out. You see, it's going to ruin your life just like you ruin the life of an alcoholic by getting him into Alcoholics Anonymous. Just like you ruin a drug user's life by getting them into Narcotics Anonymous. Why? It's going to wreck all the stuff that there's in that's causing them to do these things. It's going to change their lives irrevocably. Getting into God's word is going to change your life irrevocably because some of the things that you think are fun and that you think are holding you together are going to be things that you have to fix and change and get rid of. But I promise you, it's going to give you a new, more peaceful life, one full of hope, gentleness, and goodness. And then you will have the will to carry this out with other people. And that's next week. <laughs>